All right. Before there was Easter Sunday, there was Good Friday. Just want to say welcome, guys. We're so glad you're here. Um, my name is Josiah, and welcome just to our Good Friday service. Uh, here, here's the hope of today. We just want to slow down and reflect on the cross. And so we're going to be looking at, at a passage in 1 Peter 2. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible so you can follow along and see what we're going through. But we're just going to look at a couple verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. So keep your hands raised. We'll get you a Bible. But 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know if you've had time today to, to slow down at all. I know that many of you had to work and it's probably been very vis- busy for you, but, but I really hope you've had time to slow down and think about the cross and think about what Jesus was walking through 2,000 years ago, what last night would have looked like, what today would have looked like. And we're going to do that right now, but I, I would even ask that you would do this tonight, tomorrow, that you would read the resurrection story in one of the four Gospels, that you would just get some time alone to, to enjoy this. Um, just reading this this week and, and being reminded of it, um, even though I've read this story hundreds, if not honestly thousands of times, it's one of those things where I, as I read it, I go, God, make this new to my heart today. Let this be like the first time I've ever heard this. Let the Gospel be just as fresh as it is today as it was when I first heard it. And so that's really my prayer for, for us tonight, is that this could be like it's the first time we've ever heard the story of the cross, that we could understand what happened at the cross. And so we're just going to take some time and reflect on the cross. And here's what I want to look at, really, what happened at the, at the cross practically, but what happened at the cross spiritually? Like, what happened from heaven's vantage point? And so we're, we're going to do that. We're going to reflect on the cross and look at it. And um, I do want to go into detail, so if there's anyone under 12 in here, I'd ask that, you know, we do have kids ministry provided because we want to go into detail. And we want to be more graphic because we don't want to say Jesus was crucified. We want to understand the cost that he paid for us. And so we're going to do that tonight because before there's the beauty of Easter Sunday, there's the pain of Good Friday. And so tonight, I think it's, and it's weird to do this sometimes, but we don't do this maybe in enough. Ecclesiastes talks about there's a time to, to mourn. And I think for us, this is that time in some ways. I know that we know the story. I know that we know how it ends. But I just want us to put ourselves in the, disi- in the disciples' sandals and see how they saw the cross and see what it's like for them. Because I think it makes the, the beauty of Sunday that much more special. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, before we read that, I love uh, a quote. I just want to read it, what Billy Graham said about the cross. He says, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. And we're going to look at the paradox of the cross today. So First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 24. We'll read this twice. He says, who himself or he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. One more time. Uh, Just from the ESV, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we're just humbled by what happened at the cross. And God, I just ask that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, for for all of us in this room, whether we've known you for many years or don't know you or don't believe in you, Jesus, we just ask that this story would be more than a story. That God, that that the cross, that this greatest event and yet most painful event and disgusting event of human history. It just changed the world as we know it. And so, Lord, today, as we just slow down and look at the cross, Jesus, we want to see you. 
We want this to be more than just a, another Friday, Good Friday service that could become religious. We don't want it to be that, God. We just ask that you'd be here. We ask, God, that communion and our time reflecting on the sacrifice you made for us would be fresh, it'd be sweet, God. Let this be brand new to our hearts. And so, God, I just ask in this room, if there's any just cynicism, any tiredness, any frustrations or bitterness at you, God, or any, anything, Lord, that would just keep our eyes from hearing from you, God, we want to have ears to hear, so give us ears to hear Jesus. Let everyone in this room have ears to hear from you, and that, God, we have time to really just, just understand and med- meditate and reflect on the cross right now. And we ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name, amen. Uh, you know, growing up as a kid, and I want to make sure I say this nicely, but uh, my mom, she wasn't, she wasn't the best cook. Um, and she, if she's listening to this later, mom, I love you. I'm so sorry. But she wasn't the best cook. She, she really was. She was a great baker. If you know my mom, my mom's a great baker. She made these, like, no-bake cookies. I don't know if you've had no-bake cookies, but they don't, they don't bake. You put them in the fridge, like peanut butter, chocolate, oatmeal. It's the best thing ever. But she, she just loved to bake. Great baker, not so good of a cook. You know, there's a few meals of, of hers that I, I, I liked, but just to give you some understanding, you're like, help me understand you. Um, my mom was the kind of person where I'd ask my mom, mom, what's for dinner? And her response would be, would be fudge. I'd be like, like, mom, what's for dinner? Cookies? Like, my mom really just loved to bake. That's what she loved to do. She found joy in it. And so because of that, she made me addicted to sugar. Like, I, if you know me, it's bad. I have an addiction to sugar because my mom grew me up that way. So on those rare occasions when my mom wanted to make healthy food or make healthy food, I was probably that stereotypical kid who just fight against it and resist it. My parents loved squash and yams, and I just could not understand that. And I'm like, we had fudge last night, now yams tonight? Like, I just couldn't make that jump, you know? It's very hard for me to understand that. And when I got married, my wife's like, this has to change, right? Like, you can't do this. Like, you're going to die by 35. You can't do that. So I've had to kind of now learn to enjoy these healthy meals and healthy vegetables, and I'm, it's growing on me. But, you know, for me, it's a love-hate relationship. Like, I love it because I know I want to live, but I hate it because I love the taste and certain things. And it's, like, working out to me, all right? Like, I, I have a love-hate relationship, maybe like many of you, a love-hate relationship with working out. Like, you love it because you feel good, but you absolutely despise it with every part of your being. And, and there's, a part of, there's a lot of things in life that are like that. There's a lot of things in life where you can have one feeling towards it and, and another feeling towards it at the same moment. We call that a paradox. Like, life itself is a paradox. If you think about life, you go, man, life is just so beautiful. And you guys can put that down. Life is just so beautiful. Life is incredibly beautiful. You see a baby or have your first son or daughter, and you, you look at life, you go, there's nothing better than this. Life is absolutely beautiful. In the same breath, you can read something or see something on the news and go, life is disgusting and people are evil and wicked. And it's weird how in one moment, something can be incredibly beautiful and incredibly wicked at the same time. And, and I suggest to you that the cross is the greatest paradox. That the cross is the greatest paradox. That if you think about the cross, you think that this is the most beautiful thing and yet the most disgusting thing. This is where you see the worst of man and this is where you see the best of God. This is where you say this is vile and you say at the same time this is just beautiful. There's something really unique about the cross, and it stirs a lot of emotions in us. Because you honestly see the worst of mankind and yet the best of God. And what seems to be defeat, and in fact, is victory. And how does something look like defeat but also be victorious? It's a paradox. The cross truly is a paradox. Because I think about it, I go, God came to earth and visited us and walked among us, and we rejected him, and we abused him, and spat on him, and crucified him, and scourged him, and we mocked him. And the cross is absolutely disgusting when you see the hearts of men. And at the same time, you look at the cross and go, yeah, but this is so beautiful. This is the greatest love story ever written. You know, the cross, again, in one moment, it's, it's, it's just vile and it hurts. And yet you go, God, this is so gorgeous. It's weird how the cross is just that paradox for us. 
And you think about this. I mean, really think about this. How can God be just and gracious? How does someone be just? How does a judge say guilty and innocent? How do you do that? A judge can't say you're guilty, and then a judge can't say you're innocent. See, the cross is the only way God can be completely just and completely gracious. God in his justice punished sin, and yet he pardons the sinner. See, sin has been paid for. God is just, and yet the person at the same time is also forgiven. There's grace. You, it makes no sense. When you look at how can justice and grace coincide, it doesn't make sense, and yet it works at the cross. Right? There's something very unique about the cross. It is the greatest paradox. And you saw the definitions been up here. I was going to wait to say it. Paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Like when you first see it, you go, no, this doesn't make sense. How can it be beautiful and ugly? How can it be just and gracious? And yet when you look at the cross and you think about the cross, you go, it's exactly that. It is the greatest paradox. It is the way God says, I can, I can punish sin, but yet I can also be completely gracious at the same time. I'm so thankful for the paradox of the cross. I'm so thankful for life, things that appear to be one way, but in reality it's something else. That is the cross. And it is so gorgeous. I love how a guy named uh, R.C. Sproul, he, he said it this way. He says, the most obscene symbol in human history is the cross. Yet in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity. How is it both? How does it do that? And, and if we ever just slow down and think about the cross, you go, wow, look at the heart of man. God comes to love us. God comes to extend his arm of grace to us, and we take his arm of grace and we nail it to a cross. How do we do that? How, how does it get that bad? How is it so ugly and yet so beautiful? Another guy, uh, I like this quote by John Piper. He said, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Amen? What was once foolish to us must become our only boast. And so I've heard so many messages about the cross. Maybe you have too. I've grown up in the church and heard many messages, and, it, and a lot of times I just sit there being like, okay, when is this going to be over? When can I go home? When can, I re- when can we get to Sunday? Because I, like, I don't like Good Friday. Like, you know, there's so many times I sat in, and, and now I'm at this place, and I hope you are too, where you just cling to the cross. How can we embrace it? How can we love it? How can, how can we be a group of people that want to boast in the cross? Want to boast in what happened at the cross? Boast in, boast in what Christ did for us at the cross? See, I think there's some of you here who could probably give a better message on, than me on the cross. You've heard so many messages on the cross. And this is honestly my prayer is that this would be fresh to us tonight. That God would just do something completely new. So here's what I want to look at today. And here's how we're going to look at the cross. I want to look at why the cross. Why the cross. Like why the cross? Versus any other way. Why the cross? What happened at the cross? And how does the cross change me today? So why the cross? What happened at the cross? How does the cross change us? All right, so let's look at the first thing. Why the cross? All right, why the cross? I mean, think about this. Why wasn't Jesus just stoned? Why wasn't he beheaded like Paul? Like, why the cross? Why the crucifixion? Why the most torturous, painful way to die? Why the cross? A couple thoughts. I'm going to throw these out here to you guys, but a couple thoughts. One is this, simply to fulfill scriptures. Why the cross? To fulfill scriptures. If you've ever read one of the four gospels and you read the crucifixion story, especially Matthew's gospel, he says over and over again that scriptures might be fulfilled, that scriptures might be fulfilled. You see thing after thing happening at the crucifixion scene. And Matthew's saying, this is happening so scripture could be fulfilled. The cross had to happen. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He said, Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. What are the scriptures? And I would, this could be its own sermon, and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you guys a few really quick. All right, what are the scriptures? Really quick, write down Psalm 22. Why, why the cross? 
please, please read Psalm 22 if you haven't recently. Read how many verse after verse after verse is just pointing to Jesus on the cross. David, who doesn't even know about crucifixion, crucifixion isn't even invented yet, and you see them fighting over his garments in Psalm 22. You see in Psalm 22, I think 16, where the verse, his hands and his feet were pierced. There's just unique, in-depth details in Psalm 22 about the cross. All right, next. Uh, why the cross? Here's another verse really quick for you guys. It's Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5, and you, you've heard this verse maybe. Uh, in Isaiah 53, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Speaking really of the scourging, the flogging of what Jesus went through. By his stripes we're healed. Why the cross? Why the crucifixion scene? Why the flogging? Honestly, as, as Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. This was God's plan all, all along. God's like, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to have to see the worst of mankind, the ugliest side of mankind. You know, a verse I, I, I really haven't ever like, given much thought to. I don't know if you guys love to read the book of Amos uh, or, or spend time in that book. But I remember years ago, I was sitting in a discipleship group, and the pastor was talking to us, and he goes, no one ever really quotes this verse about, about Jesus and the cross but it couldn't be more clear, and it's so true. It's Amos chapter 8, uh, verse 9 through 10. He says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into morning. Was that not the cross? If you guys know, Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. On the th- for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross. We're told at noon, the sun went down. We're told that it just darkness covered the land. Amos says there will be a day, and think about this, your feasts will be turned into morning. They're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating their Jewish feast, their Jewish festival, and it's turned into morning. Darkness covers the earth. Why the cross? Honestly, that scriptures might be fulfilled. I mean, we could give you so much more. We could talk about Zechariah 11 and how Jesus had to be sold for 30 pieces of silver and that money would be used to buy a potter's field. I mean, there's so many specific, not just general vague problems. There's so many specific problems. Why was Jesus crucified? Honestly, because this was God's plan. He had to fulfill scriptures. That God is saying, I'm going to show you how my son's going to come into this world. I'm going to show you how he comes. I'm going to show you how he dies. So you can know specifically who he is. So you can know that he died an innocent death. So you can know exactly what happened at the cross and during the cross. We'll keep moving, but why the cross to fulfill scriptures? Why the cross, number two? uh, Because Jesus must be lifted up. Why the cross? Jesus must be lifted up. And this is very specific. Jesus says this about himself. It's in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus must be lifted up. Now, I love that Jesus gives us commentary on an Old Testament story. He's like, hey, remember that story way back when? That's me. All right, if you've never read this story, it's in Numbers 21, and you can get some context to it. But it's an awesome story. Moses just delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, they're in the wilderness. Remember, they're wandering the wilderness for years upon years, but they're in the wilderness, and they're mad at Moses. They go, Moses, did you bring us out of Egypt here to die? Like, and they said, we're sick of this bread from heaven. Like, we're sick of God providing for us every day, and they're complaining against the bread of God. We're sick of this. We want to go back to our slave food. That's literally what they're saying. We want to go back into slavery. And God's like, if you want to complain, I'll give you something to complain about. And he sends fiery serpents, if you guys know the story. And these fiery serpents are biting the people, and the people are dying off. They're going, Moses, we've sinned. We've sinned. How dare we say this against God? We've sinned. Please pray for us. This needs to end. This needs to stop. So Moses is praying, and this is what God says to Moses. In Numbers 21, uh, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. 
And this couldn't be more clear of the gospel. God's like, you want these people who are bitten, being bitten and, and dying, you want them to live? Hey, take a serpent, put it on a pole. When they look at it, they'll live. And I can't imagine how many people would be like, no, 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 no. That's way too easy. That's way too simple. You're telling me I'm bit by a snake, and if I want to be healed, I look at a snake on a pole? Like, that will heal me? Like, you got to be kidding yourself. And I wonder how many people thought, this is too simple, this is too easy, no way that, or I wonder how many people's pride got in the way of looking at that snake on a pole. And you think about the cross, you think about what happened. You think about how the Bible talks about we've all been bitten by this thing called sin. That all of us are plagued with sin. And sin leads to death. That all of us will die. And God says, I'm going to lift up my son, and whoever looks to him in faith will be saved. And you go, no, no, it can't be that simple. It can't be that simple. That all you do is look to Jesus on a cross and we're saved. But this is exactly what he showed in Numbers 21, saying this will happen. You know, we're actually told that this serpent was a brass serpent, brass serpent. If you study the scriptures, brass spoke of judgment, serpent spoke of sin. And the idea is this, your sin is judged. Your sin's judged. Look at the brass serpent. Look at the judged sin. If you look at your sin being judged, you're forgiven. The whole idea is our sin was judged on Jesus. My sin was placed on Jesus. My sin has been judged. I look to him because sin has been judged. I'm not going to be judged for my sin one day because God already judged my sin on his son. And that is the idea of the cross. We look at the cross because Jesus, he had to be lifted up. You know, it's interesting. Jews even, there's this verse in Deuteronomy, and I'm not going to read it now, but they, they looked at anyone who hangs on a tree as cursed of God. That if you hang on a tree, you're cursed. I, I love how Paul says this in Galatians 3.13. Paul writes it this way. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. When God said to Moses, I want you to make a snake and put it on a pole. And Jesus, again, understand this. Moses didn't get a snake that was crawling around and put it in bronze. He had to make one. And Jesus was not filled with sin originally. Jesus took on sin. Jesus became the curse. Jesus took the curse that Deuteronomy talked about. Whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus is like, I will reverse the curse. I will hang so that curse can be reversed. I will hang so you can be healed. And we see that Jesus had to be lifted up. Why the cross? Why not stoning? Why not beheading? He had to be lifted up. God was saying, look at Moses. Jesus said this himself. Look at the snake on the pole. That's me. Sin has been judged on me. Amen? Aren't you so, so thankful for the cross? That God made it really clear. I'm not going to just make this vague way of how the Messiah is going to die for your sin. It's going to be really clear. He, he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up, and you're going to have to look to him in faith to be saved. Just as that serpent was lifted up, you're going to have to look at it to be saved. You're going to have to look at my son in the same way. See, why the cross? God, listen, God planned it that way. It's written in the scriptures. Jesus must be lifted up. But here's what we, we got to talk about. Here's what we got to look at. What happened at the cross? Like, what happened at the cross? And, and there's two sides to this. There's what happened practically and what happened spiritually. Like, what was actually happening during that time on the cross and that whole scene? So I do want to kind of explain this and get into this because I do think for a lot of us, the cross is just a symbol. It's an icon. Before maybe even a Christian, you wore a cross, right? We see it everywhere. It's funny how, like, I was looking at a magazine. There was, like, a news article when you're checking out. Like, this guy's cheating on his wife, and he has a cross around his neck, right? Like, the cross doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. It's just, like, a symbol. It's kind of cool looking. It's just there. And, and so what, what's up with the cross and, and what happened at the cross? And it's important for us to understand this. So let me just kind of give you some context and background. The Romans did not invent crucifixion. The Persians did. The Romans just perfected it. The, the, the Persians invented crucifixion around 500 years before Christ. David wrote Psalm 22 a couple hundred years before that. But we see that, we see that the, the Persians invented it. The Romans take this idea and, and they perfect it. And they become really good executioners. And there's a lot of different people who write about the cross, not believers, who write about what happened at the cross and how terrible the cross was. And I'll quote to you a couple of different guys. One was uh, a guy named Josephus. He says, this is the most wretched of the deaths. Nothing's worse than the cross. It can't get any worse than this. Another guy named Cicero, he was a, a Jewish um, philosopher. 
He said, decent Roman citizens shouldn't even, shouldn't speak of the cross because it was unfit for them to even ponder that kind of murderous death. Like, you didn't sit around talking about the cross at the dinner table if you're a Roman citizen. Like, oh, you just see who's crucified today. You didn't even talk about it. You, you saw it, you're aware of it, but you, this wasn't something you brought up in your everyday conversation. I mean, again, the Jews' mindset was cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. So in their mind, Jews' minds, anyone who's hanging on a tree, they're, they're cursed. So whether it's, whether it's Romans, whether it's Jews, they're going, that's a cursed human being. We don't talk about that. that. We don't look at that. You know, under, understand, too, that Romans didn't even crucify their own citizens. They would crucify foreigners, and they'd crucify maybe high treason, but they didn't crucify their own people. It was too horrible of a way to, to do to their own people. They'd find other ways to kill their people. You know, even just understanding crucifixion, women, they wouldn't really crucify women, but if they ever did, they'd make her face towards the cross because they didn't want to see the agony in a woman's face. They would hardly ever do it, but when they did, they're like, we, can't even, we don't even want to look upon a woman when she's being crucified, so they, they faced her towards it. This is something that, for us, we talk about. It's funny how lightly we'll say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And, and do we understand what that meant? Do we understand what that looked for, you know, what that, what that looked like? You know, those who died on a cross, they died by something called asphyxiation. They basically suffocated to death. We know that Jesus, when he died, as you guys know and you read the story, they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water flows. That, that just shows that his heart ruptured. Let a pocket of water around his heart ruptured. And, and the idea is Jesus, you could say, died of a broken heart, like literally. But you look at the, there's really one of those things for them. They'd, they'd have to push up on the nail in their, in the, really their Achilles. They'd have to push up on the nail to take a breath and then just sag down. Push up, take a breath, and sag down. And a lot of times they'd go into shock, they'd pass out, they'd faint. You understand the scene of this. Anyone who's crucified, you understand the blood, the sweat, the tears, the urine, the feces, all below them. They could hang for maybe a day or two or more. Birds would pick at them. People would walk by and just spit on them, mock them. I mean, it, you think about the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross, I can't imagine. People you've seen before, people who you've lived with, walk by you, look at you. The shame that it brought to your family and friends. Just imagine all the pain it went through emotionally, psychologically. You're naked, you're exposed. People are just looking on you. I mean, again, we, we talk about the cross so like hard. I think that's one of the greatest errors sometimes in the church is if we can talk about the cross and not understand what that really meant, what that looked like, how shameful it must have been emotionally, how painful it must have been. And this was for someone who was innocent. And this was for someone who did nothing wrong. And this is for someone who... who Literally, again, you look at it and you go, if there's one person that should never be, it's Jesus, and he was. And he went through this torturous way to die. And yet we mock it in culture. You know, you've seen pop shows where, like, Madonna comes out on a cross, or you, we see, like, the ridiculous things where people mock the cross, and, and they just, they make light of it. I mean, before even the crucifixion, there was a scourging. You think about the flogging that would take place. Romans had really ex expert executioners. They'd have some, like, a cat of nine tails, usually, obviously, with nine different cords or strands a few feet long. There'd be hard metal, like balls on the end of these, on the cat of nine tails. There'd be metal or bones at the end. The idea is when they'd whip you, it would tenderize you with the metal balls, and then the bone or the glass or whatever it might be would rip in your skin, and when they pull it off, you just see chunks of skin flying off. At Eusebius, the church father, talks about the idea of scourging, and he said it would expose the back. You could sometimes see the spine, the veins, the organs. Most people died alone just from the, the scourging itself. People talk about bones being ripped off as they would scourge someone. They'd see bones fly off people. Jesus endured the scourging, the flogging. Then they mock him some more, make him a crown of thorns, stick it into his head. They mock him some more and put a purple robe on him. As his blood clots and they rip it off, 
Think about them pulling out his beard, ripping from, pulling out his beard, just bleeding from his face. I mean, you think about this. Isaiah said this, it would be this bad. Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, verse 14, he says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He wasn't recognizable. For some people, they, they would see what was happening, and you go, is that the same person? He just walked away for a little bit and came back. You go, that can't be the same person. He was marred more than any man. He, you couldn't recognize him. People watching sometimes would faint alone just from watching. I'm sure if many of us were in here, we'd run away, we'd throw up, we'd vomit. We, we couldn't be around it. And Jesus is taking all of this again innocently. After that, they put about a 100-pound bean on him. They take this to your death. Carry the own th- your own thing that's going to kill you. They drive three nails through him. And you know that the nails were not necessarily in his hands, but in his wrists. It'd puncture the large median nerve. Just tons of blood would be flowing. They usually would turn your legs sideways like this and pierce one kneel through both of your Achilles. And just think about the blood, the gore, the horror, while people are mocking you. While people are saying, hey, you saved others, can't you save yourself? Just mocking him. Can't you get down from there? Other thieves, hey, can't you get us down from there? Just mocking him, belittling him. All the while, he has all the power in the world to say one word and it can stop. And yet he doesn't. And he doesn't do that. There's stories of people who are being crucified. They try to urinate, spit on people. They would try to find revenge in some way. Jesus is hanging there says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's my God. That's my Savior. He has all the power in the world and says, I need to do this for them. I need to show you what victory looks like. Because we're not used to seeing victory that way. Victory doesn't look like that to us. It looks like defeat. The cross really is a paradox. You look at it and go, how, how could that pay for the sins of the world? And, and if you imagine people going, and again, still to this day, that's your, your God is the guy who was hung on a wooden cross? That's your God? And you're like, yes. That's my God. And you just imagine, again, Jesus. Jesus, the, the, he's the lamb, but he's also the lion. Again, he, he had all the authority called on angels from heaven at any point in time and stop it, and yet he just doesn't. I just love that about Jesus. I love that about our God. And again, you, you think, people go, Christians are weird. Why do you talk about this? Why do you talk about the blood? There's just so much blood involved. Why? The scourging, the ripping out the beard, the beating that took place beforehand, the nails to the hands and the feet, the, the crown of thorns is so much, like a pool of blood below. Why do you guys talk about that? Why do you guys think about that? Because the blood reminds us of how, how, how disgusting sin is. Blood reminds us that my sins did that. Blood reminds us that, there, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's always been shedding of blood for there to be forgiveness of sins. Every cult, even, even cult, bar, barbarous pagan cultures, for some reason, felt like we need to murder a human or we need to murder something and blood needs to be spilled for us to be right with the gods. What was that? What was that? It's the heart of man. I'm not right with God or gods. What is going on? Let's just kill. And, and there's just, it's within all of us, this idea of this blood, this intense thing when you see blood. And God said, I'm sending my sacrifice. I'm sending the, the last sacrifice. I'm sending the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. You see, what happened at the cross is something that's unimaginable where I don't think any one of us have really spent time maybe even just going, Jesus, you went through that for me personally. Not just us, yes, us, but for me personally. You took on my sin, my shame. See, that's what happened practically, but what happened spiritually? Like, what was happening at the cross spiritually? That's the other side of this. When you think about what was going on, like, what was happening in heaven's vantage point? Like, what was going on there between God and, like, and Jesus? What's happening at that point in time? Uh, I'll read this verse to you guys really quick. What was happening spiritually? Again, we just read it in 1 Peter 2. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What was happening spiritually? He himself bore our sins on the tree. On the tree, this transaction was taking place. On the cross, God is pouring out the sins of the world onto his son. 
I mean, that, there's this great exchange taking place on that cross. Jesus, who lived a sinless life, his whole entire life, never sinned, is taking on the sin of the world at one moment in time. And we talked about six hours on the cross. And at noon, the sun goes down. For three hours, there's darkness. And at the end of the third hour, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During that three-hour process, the un- unimaginable happened is that he was cut off from God. And I, and I really want us to, to grasp this. During that time on the cross, it was the fact that the wrath of God and judgment of God for me was poured out on Jesus. That I'm not going to stand before God one day and pay for my sins because Jesus did pay for my sins. That God's not going to punish the same sin twice. But understand how bad it was. Understand that in one moment, one period of time, that the weight of the world, the sin of the world, the darkness of the world, the evil of the world, the rape, the murder, the incest, all that stuff, all the things that you and I have done that no one knows about, that are on the screen that would just blow us all away, all of that junk was placed on Jesus. And it was just, this was happening. Darkness covers the land. It's noon. It's high noon. It's sun's out. And God is pouring out his wrath, all of his judgment, judgment day wrath on his son. He is bearing judgment day wrath for us. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never called God God. He called him Father. First time he calls him God. Because something now has changed. He goes, you've taken my relationship to you, this, this relationship I've had with you before the foundations of the world has changed. He goes, my God, my God, why have, you, why have you forsaken me? And think about the idea of forsake. You've forsaken me. Jesus was cut off from the Father so you and I could be brought in. The whole idea of him appearing on the cross and God was cut off, it was so you and I would not have to be cut off one day. The point is we would have been cut off from God if Jesus wasn't cut off. But Jesus was cut off. He said, you were forsaken me, so you and I would never have to be forsaken. That's what's happened at the cross. You know, this is maybe a stupid illustration, but if one of you, some of you, I, I don't, maybe like just come up to me and say, Josiah, I want nothing to do with you. I never want to see you again. That would really hurt my feelings. Like, I'd be like, ow, why don't they ever want to see me again? That'd really hurt. It'd be much different if my wife came up to me and said, I never want to see you again. I'm out of here. Much different. The pain of that, I'm sorry, would hurt a lot more, right? Because whenever there's closeness, whenever there's intimacy, and someone's like, I'm out of, whenever that, there's that break, that hurts a lot more. Think about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Think about the relationship they had for all of eternity. Think about the, the, friend, the perfect love and unity they have with each other, and then it's cut off from that moment of time. You see, that's what was happening at the cross. He was cut off so you and I could be brought in. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we'll never have to say those words. And that's the whole point is, do you believe that? That Jesus took on the sin, right? He bore our sins on the tree right? He's that serpent who is hung up on that pole. He's that serpent. He's Jesus. He took on the sin of the world. That we, we read it in a verse that I love, and that's kind of why we're called the exchange, but God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God became, Jesus became sin that we might have his righteousness. No one here who's a believer in Jesus Christ who understands the gospel is going to boast in the righteousness. We can't. I have the righteousness of Christ in me. You have the righteousness of Christ in you if you believe. I can't get any better than that. You can't get any better than that. We're on the same playing field here. And, and this idea that Jesus took on this in the world, that we might now be alive to righteousness. See, there is something amazing happening. Like they're looking at a man bleeding and dying, and God is doing a lot of things from that 12 to 3 o'clock period. And he goes, God, why, why have you forsaken me? Why, why am I cut off? And as Kimber read the verses earlier during worship, they were told he breathed his last, he gave up the spirit, and then it says that the, t- the veil in the temple was ripped. And, and I know that you've heard, many of you know this and have heard this, but it's just so necessary to know. Maybe you haven't heard of this. There is the temple of God. The temple of God is, is basically where the priests would do their priestly duties. The temple was very big, but I'll speak about this one part of the temple. It's called the holy place. 
in the holy place, you, you have the altar of incense, you have the table of showbread. Priests would go in there, and, and they would do their duties, and they make sure the candle was always lit. And they had their duties. But behind, in the holy place, there was this veil, this very thick veil. Behind the veil was what we call the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. If you guys know this, no one could go behind that veil. No one could except one man one day of year. The high priest could go behind that veil on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and he would take a basin of blood with him, and he'd sprinkle blood on the, Holy, the Ark of the Covenant, and he'd atone for the people's sins. And, and he, sometimes, hopefully, he could do that. Hopefully, he was holy enough or worthy enough. Hopefully, he didn't die in the process of it. But only one man, one day, you could go into the presence of God and atone for the sins of the world. Jesus gives up his spirit, and, and it's so recognizable that that day that there's this earthquake, something happened where the veil rips open. The veil rips open if, if God says, it's open, come to me. Hebrews 4 talks about come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. That you and I have access to God because of what Jesus has done for us. Job asks this question, he goes, who can put a hand on God and man? And Jesus like me, I can. I can, I can do, but I can bridge that gap. The veil was rent, the veil was torn. I love how Hebrews chapter 10 talks about it. It talks about the veil that was rent and it says the veil was rent in the temple and it says that is his flesh. I'm like, what? That is his flesh. Because Jesus' flesh was rent, was torn open, that's why I have access to God. It's not so much the veil. Yes, it is. That's a wonderful picture. The veil is a picture of his flesh. Because his flesh was rent and torn open, I have access to the Father. You have access to the Father. You see, what happens spiritually, God is saying, come to me now. You can have unique, direct access to me. That you, you don't have to go, on, there has to be an ambassador through the high priest one man one day a year, that you have all have access to me. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That at any point in time, you and I can, can in a sense, really, go to God, be alone and say, God, I plea, I beg, show mercy to me. That God will forgive you your sin. That you don't need a priest. You don't need a lamb. You don't need to go to temple and lay your hands on a lamb anymore and confess your sins and slit a lamb's throat. You don't need to do that anymore. Jesus was the lamb. He was the one who, who had his whole body in a sense slit. He, he spilled his blood so we could be brought back in. See, I, I love that about our God. That I don't need a priest. Jesus is my high priest. I don't need someone else to do this for me. Jesus did it all for me. That's why the veil is rent. That's why the veil is torn. At any point in time, anywhere you are, you can come to God as you are and say, God, forgive me. That doesn't need to be somewhere special. It doesn't need to be in a church. It can be anywhere you say, God, show mercy to me. I'm a sinful man. I confess, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again from the grave. I believe with all my heart. And the Bible says you will be saved. You don't need to pre- you can, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can't be saved. God's like, I want to make this so simple. It's as simple as looking at a snake on a pole. It's as simple as looking to a man on a tree just saying, believe. God's like, I'm not trying to complicate it. I'm not trying to make it hard for you to enter the kingdom. I'm not trying to make you jump through hoops or travel here or do these five things five times a day. I just want you to simply come to me and call upon me. The veil was rent, the veil was torn, so we could be brought near. See, why the cross? To fulfill scriptures, Jesus must be lifted up. What happened? A lot happened at the cross. Practically and spiritually, a lot happened. He bore our sins on that tree. Amen? But here's the question even for us, though. Christians, and uh, me, you, us, if we believe this, if we really believe this, how does that change us? Like, it can't just be, oh, some Jesus died for my sins, I'm going to go live my old life, whatever I was doing before. How does that change us? Like, how, how does that make me different? How does it make Josiah Graves or make you different today? I love how pa- Paul has this really interesting, in, in the book of uh, Galatians, Paul has these three different comments about the cross and crucifixion referring to himself. And I want you just to see this. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes some of the best verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. When you hear that, Paul's like, I've been crucified with Christ. The day that Christ died on the cross is the day I died on the cross. See, I'm dead. Jesus died, I'm, de- I'm dead. The idea of baptism is 
Again, Jesus went into the grave and came out. The idea is, I'm dead. I've died. I've died. I'm going to come out new. I'm going to walk in newness of life. I've been crucified with Christ. Any life that I'm living from now on, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Any, faith, any, any moment from now on, I'm living by faith in him. And then Paul continues the same thought, and I love this. So he crucified himself, and now he's going to crucify his flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, he says, And those who are Christ, are you Christ? Are you Christ? And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Those who are Christ are saying, I need to crucify my will. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and imagining he's facing the cross, and, and he's again, Jesus is about to face the cross, no sleep, very weak, very tired. He's about to face the cross, but what does he say in the garden? Father, is any other way, let this cup pass from me, however not my will, but let your will be done. And Jesus is basically, what he's not, he's not that he wants to face the pain of the cross. He doesn't want to face the separation from the Father, I so believe. His biggest fear is being separated from the Father. I think that should be our biggest fear, is being separated from the Father. He goes, any other way, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. And this idea of crucifixion, being crucified with Christ, is you're saying that, God, not what I want anymore. Your will be done. Listen, if you've been crucified with Christ, you're, you're, that is your life motto. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Not what I want, but what do you want, God? I'm putting to death my desires, my passions, my, what, because I think God has a lot better ones in store for us than we can even imagine. I think we settle so often. God's like, I have way better plans for you. I have way better desires for you. You settle way too much. You think your ways are good? Try my ways. Those who are Christ have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires. Has it happened? If it's happened, you've been crucified with Christ. Has, has it happened? And he ends with this last one in Galatians 6.14. I love it. He says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid I should boast in anything except if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross. And why? Because I've been crucified to the world and the world's dead to me. I'm dead to the world, the world's dead to me. When the world comes knocking, I'm dead. I can't answer. Like, I can't. I'm dead. I'm dead to the world and the world's dead to me. Those old, those old relationships, those old things that were bringing me, I'm dead to that, they're dead to me. I'm now walking in newness of life. You know, Jesus talks about this so clear, clearly. You guys, remember when Jesus in Luke 14 says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and die. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He, you have to take up your cross. Some part of Christian, like, there's going to be a part of Christianity where you realize you're going to die. And yet, in the process of dying, you'll find the newness of life. And I don't want to get there yet because that's, that's for Easter Sunday. But we have to die. That, there's a part of this where we do have to die. You know, Jesus said it also this way in Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paradox, right? How does that make sense? If you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you're going to find it. Lose your life and find it in Christ. Find your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Find that. I love how, how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, discipleship, or the call of God, the call of God is come, he bids you to come and die. The call of God is, to, he bids you, he says, come on, die. That's what a disciple is. We look at the crucifixion and we go, oh, that's so awful. Jesus, thankfully, Jesus did that for us. And you know what I love? Paul's like, no, no, no. I've been crucified with Christ. Jesus might have died for me 2,000 years ago, but I, I'm, I'm dead with, I'm, my old life is dead. It's not about me anymore. I'm not living for me and my will. I'm, I'm, now, I'm now living for something much greater and beyond that. And here's what I want to do. We're going to just take some time and reflect on that on Good Friday. We're going to take communion and we're going to reflect on the price that Jesus paid for us and we're going to reflect on the fact that we identify with him. And, and please don't get lost in this. And here's what I want you to hear. If you guys remember, the night before Jesus is crucified, he's with his disciples, and he's taking communion. 
And if you guys know, it's Passover. They're, they're having this cedar meal. And something really interesting, if you guys know, whenever, if you guys have ever been a part of Passover, there's someone like a presider, there's someone who leads the Passover and explains what each thing is, right? And this was even happening then. There was something called the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction was saying, hey, the Jews would do this. Hey, see this bread? This bread of affliction? It reminds us how we were slaves in Egypt. And it reminds us how when God said, go, go with Moses, cross Red Sea, we had to, just, we had to take our food and run. And it's, it's not leavened, it's, it's flat, it's dry bread, it's not the best tasting bread, but it reminds us of our affliction. It, it reminds us of how, how we were afflicted, but yet God set us free. You know what Jesus is doing? He's holding up that bread of affliction and saying, this is me. I'm the bread of affliction. I'm the bread of affliction. I'm the one who's afflicted for you. It's not just some story with Moses. I'm this bread of affliction. By my stripes, you're healed. I'm pierced, and I'm, I've bled. I will bleed so you can be forgiven. And so when we take communion, we're reminded of the Exodus story, but more so we're reminded how God saved, God saved us more from slavery, but from sin, hell, and death. And God is saying, remember my sacrifice, remember my body, remember my blood. And so, guys, we have to do this. We, and not have to be like, we do get to, but we, like, we have to do this. We get to join in with so many saints from the last couple thousand years who take the bread and take the cup and say, Jesus, thank you for this great sacrifice you gave. And this necessarily isn't a sad thing. I love when they took communion. It says they sang some hymns. If you read, they sang, they sang, they sang Psalm 113 through 118. And they, they just sang back to God. And for us, this is something we can celebrate. And go, God, God, thank you so much that you paid the ultimate price. Thank you that by your stripes we're healed. Thank you for, for your blood that you shed, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to ask as we, in a second, pass out communion, you, you take it and you hold it and just pray over it and thank God. Just thank him. This is not just a sad thing, this is a celebratory thing. And so I want us to spend a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to thank the Lord. And so here's what I'm asking you to do, just so you guys know. Here's how we're going to do this, just so you can understand. We're going to pass out communion in just a second, but I'm going I'm to ask, and the worship team is going to be playing in the background, but you just take a minute and pray. Don't eat and drink right away. Just take a minute and pray and thank God and remember his death, remember his blood, remember his body, remember the, bl- the, uh, the bread of affliction that Jesus was that for you and for I. And when you're ready, take it. I'm going to take it privately too. I'll come back up here and pray. Let me say this. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if, this is, if he's not your Lord, he's not your God, just let the communion tray pass in front of you. Again, why remember something you don't believe in? Why celebrate something you don't personally know? But if you want to believe and you say, I believe Jesus is who you said, I believe he paid for the sins of the world, go ahead, take it. Like, let that be your celebratory. Let us say, just take it. Celebrate what Christ has done for you. We remember him in this moment. And so we're going to pass out communion. I'm going to ask that you guys just privately and quietly just pray you and the Lord, you enjoy him, you talk to him, thank him, celebrate him. Take a moment to remember the cross, what happened practically, what happened spiritually, and just enjoy your Lord and enjoy the price he paid. Amen? Let's take communion.